0: This is the reading of God's word from Acts 11. Los apostoles y los hermanos de toda Judea se entraron de que también los gentiles habían recibido la palabra de Dios. Así que cuando Pedro subió a Jerusalén, los defensores de la circuncisión lo criticaron. Diciendo, entraste en casa de hombres incircuncisos y comiste con ellos. Entonces Pedro comenzó a explicarles paso a paso lo que había sucedido. Yo estaba orando en la ciudad de Ope y tuve en éxtasis una visión. Vi que del cielo descendía algo parecido a una gran sábana que suspendida. Por las cuatro puntas bajaba hasta donde yo estaba. Me fijé en lo que había en ella y vi cuartúpedos, fieras, reptiles y aves. Luego oí una voz que me decía, levántate Pedro, mata y come. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household.
1: Amen. You know, doing these scripture readings in multiple languages, because the the message of the gospel in the book of Acts for all people, for all nations. And we're even going to see that explicitly in our text today in Acts chapter 11. This is kind of the—I uh, the, the, <laughs> I started using the language in my own sermon prep time, so I'll just share it with you. It's like, this, it's like the season finale of the book of Acts. We've kind of reached a crescendo and, and kind of a pause point, point. and then next week we're going to focus on Advent. We're going to focus on this theme of how long, O oh Lord, uh, for these four weeks while we look forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus, the Messiah— and while we have seen the first coming of the Messiah, now we await the second coming of the Messiah, his return. And so we can connect with that feeling of how long, oh Lord. But for today, we'll be in Acts chapter 11, uh, kind of going all the way through the whole chapter. So if you've got your Bibles, I uh, invite you to open them. You can follow along on the screen or online. Uh, but let's pray before we do anything else. Lord, we thank you for your grace Toward us, we thank you that we get to uh, see the gospel lived out on display through the act of baptisms. And Lord, would you let that gospel resonate in our hearts, even now as we turn our attention to the scriptures? Lord, would you guide my lips, direct my speech? Let me only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And for all of us, God, would you give us soft and teachable, receptive hearts? hearts that are receptive to your, uh, your instruction for us today and receptive to your Holy Spirit within us. We pray all these things in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. amen. All right, previously in the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse one, straight to the text. No funny anecdotes, no nothing, just recap. Acts 11, verse one, the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea, they heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Remember that last week? Like, there's this big dramatic thing that the, the Spirit of God and the Word of God are being received by the Gentiles just the same way as these Jewish believers in Jesus. And, uh, it's, it's Rabbi Matt's joke, but it's, it's worth repeating that, that during the time of Jesus and the early church, it's, you know, how could you be a Gentile and follow Jesus? Whereas now it's the exact opposite. How could you be Jewish and follow Jesus? But this is the controversy that's uh, stirred up. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. That does not sound like a fun party. Saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now this is a big controversy. So Peter begins to explain to them step by step. Here's what we learned about last week. I was in the town of Joppa. Uh, that's the city where Jonah ran away from God's call to go share the message with Gentiles. Here, Peter's in Joppa, and he saw in a trance an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners from heaven, and it came to me when I looked closely and considered it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth, the wild beasts, but the reptiles and the birds of the sky. It's this mixture of all these different types of animals. Some were clean ritually and some were unclean and prohibited for the Jewish people to eat. And I also heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, I said, for nothing impure or ritually unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice answered from heaven a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call impure. Now this happened three times. And everything was drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. And then the Spirit told me to accompany them with no doubts at all. I just had to go. No fear, no second guessing. That was our our point from last week. This idea of even when I don't fully understand, Lord, I want to trust you. Lord, I want to obey you. So with no doubts at all, these six brothers also accompanied me, and we went into the man's house, and he reported to us how he had seen an angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He will speak a message to you by which you and all your household will be saved. And Peter's telling these brothers, he's telling this circumcision party, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them just as on us at the beginning, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if then God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us Jewish people, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? Whew, there's the recap. Okay, it's a lot. It's a lot that transpires there. And, and, and you have to understand that this, to us, might not sound as shocking or as controversial as it would have sounded to the first hearers, to the first readers. This is a big deal. This is a big controversy. You think we got controversies? You think we got uh, national conversations and stuff happening? This is right at the heart, right at the crux of a big, national, multi-generational conversation that was happening among the Jewish people of this time. And I want to share with you A few pieces of context, four in particular, that will help us to understand why this is such a big deal and why it's so important and why it's such a central, you know, kind of peak moment in the storyline of Acts. Four pieces of context. You ready? Context number one is understanding the law. I would submit to you that you and I As 21st century Westerners, we don't understand as well the law of Moses, what's called the Torah, or even more broadly, the Hebrew scriptures in general. In fact... You've heard me complain about the New Testament with Psalms and Proverbs that they hand out at like hotels and, at you know, county fairs and things like that. While I am grateful for the word of God going out no matter what, it's kind of like handing out the answer key without handing out the the questions. The New Testament is a clarifying uh, 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 picture of everything that came before. And we see over and over and over again, even in uh, the prequel to the book of Acts and the book of Luke, it says that Jesus talked with his disciples and told them everything in the scriptures that was written about him. We don't understand the law very well. And in particular, we don't understand the more ritualistic side of things. And if I could, uh, at the risk of broad brushing, there's there's a lot of American Christianity that says something kind of like, well, Old Testament, God had a lot of rules and regulations. It was very legalistic. God might even have been a little bit more cranky. And then Jesus showed up and he's all nice and he's compassionate and he just threw out all of those laws. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus came not to abolish the laws, but to fulfill the law. And even that is a tough and complicated thing to understand. Let me share with you a few things briefly that I think will help us understand this passage by way of context. And I'll mention that I am relying heavily upon a book that I've been reading for the last two weeks by an author named Matthew Thiessen. I've linked to it up on our church's website. It's a nearly 300-page book on ritual impurity and purity. This might shock you. I didn't quite finish it over the last week, but I made a pretty good dent, like 70% of the way through it. I've also linked an appendix. I've attached a PDF appendix on the food laws, But, but this has been really helpful for me. The first thing you need to understand when we're talking about the law is there's kind of three different aspects. The first one is moral law. Moral law. This has to do with decisions that you make. Do not covet in your heart. Show of hands, how many of you have coveted at some point in recent memory? Okay, we have all violated God's moral law because that is a decision that we have made in our hearts and in our minds where we've crossed over into what the Bible would call iniquity or transgression. And what's interesting, when you read the book of Leviticus, when we commit these moral law transgressions, what is it that needs to happen in order for us to be made right with God? sacrifice. Thank you. My wife in the front row who has listened to me preach this sermon to her for four weeks straight, because I've been really excited about this. take those points away from her. What's, what's the, what is it when someone violates the moral law, what is the remedy? Thanks, Josh. Good job. Oh man. Did you get it? You saw my notes. Okay. Yeah. This has to do with sacrifice. Now, There's another category, though, known as ritual law. And I explained this a little bit last week, but these are not necessarily moral laws. These are not decisions that you make. These are things that happen that you encounter in normal life, and there's an association with death. The ritual laws have to do with things like um, uh, emissions from the body, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, has to do with touching a corpse or a dead body, has to do with uh, skin disease that we translate as leprosy, but it's not like modern day leprosy. It's something that would make your skin look white and ashen and you would almost look like a corpse. All of these are given as reminders that we are mortal. We have been disconnected from the tree of life. We are, uh, ever since the day that we were born, we are slowly in the process of succumbing to death. And when someone has become ritually impure, you don't make a sacrifice. Do you know what the remedy is? It's a washing. It's a cleansing, there 's absolutely nothing sinful about a, a woman having her time of the month, but there 's a, a process of washing as a reminder of, of of that loss of blood as a reminder that we 're all deaf there's nothing sinful or wrong about touching a, a dead body. in fact, you have to touch a dead body in order to give it a proper burial because there's laws given about uh, commandments in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy about burying someone on the day that they die, so you have to do it. you have to touch a dead body it 's not a sin it makes you ritually impure. It's actually really interesting because this whole season of COVID has given us a, a, an analogy more than maybe ever before for us to understand these ritual purity laws. The, the the Old Testament teaches that to touch a corpse makes you unclean. But you know that if you leave a corpse for a while, it will start to emit a smell. That's why uh, Lazarus, his sister's like, well, now he, he stinketh in the old King James, Right? That this corpse is, it's not just the forces of death in the corpse, but it's like emitting the, cor- the force of death. So you keep your distance, you have to keep a six foot distance from the corpse. And if you should come into contact, I'm not making this up, with a corpse, there is a, pres- uh, there is a prescribed period of quarantine where you have to stay by yourself. And then you wash yourself and you go show yourself to the priest who gives you the ritual nasal swab, and then you may re enter, I made that part up, but you may re enter society. It's not a sin to be exposed to COVID. It's not a sin to be exposed to the forces of death. But God gave his people these reminders that to enter into the presence of life and holiness himself, it puts you at risk if you're carrying death on you. You don't go work on high voltage power lines if you have a bad head cold and some NyQuil in your system. You don't enter into the presence of holiness himself, God, while carrying death on you. Now, the third portion... Of these laws are these food laws. And these have to do with, particularly for the people of Israel, being distinct from the nations. I had a conversation with somebody even just last week, and we will have these varieties of explanations. Why did God give the people of Israel these food laws? Why is it that some animals are okay to eat and other animals are not okay to eat? And there might very well—one of the most common things you hear is kind of a practical—excuse me, practical explanation— that pork is a less safe meat. And so God was just trying to protect his people. They didn't have refrigerators back then, but now we have refrigerators. Fine. Only problem is, is none of that's in the Bible. Refrigerators aren't in the Bible. I've read the whole Bible. There are no refrigerators to be found. The only reason that is given why the people of Israel must not eat certain foods is so that they will be distinct from the other people groups of the world. Leviticus 11, when when God is wrapping up this whole section of food laws, Leviticus 11 says, for I am the Lord your God, so you must consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not defile yourselves by any swarming creature or any other unclean animal you just talked about that crawls on the ground for I am the Lord who brought you up out from the land of Egypt to be your God. This, we have a special relationship, God is saying. So therefore you must be holy because I am holy. That word holy means set apart for a special purpose. Set apart and distinct for, for a unique purpose. Some of you, maybe some of you, you guys, maybe some of you gals, you have you have your, your tool bin, but there's like that one tool that that you got that is like, nope, I don't I don't lend that one out. It is holy to me. It is set apart. For a special purpose. Or for me, um, you know, I used to teach music lessons, and I have, I have a number of guitars that I've collected over the years, but I had one guitar in particular that I used to teach music lessons, and that was the way that I provided for my family. And so I didn't lend that guitar out. I took extra care for it. I put humidifiers in it. And I, like, that was a very special guitar for me. By the way, when I was in music school, my wife, I came home one day from classes, and my wife said to me, she goes, Hey, I heard a joke today. I said, oh, really? And she goes, yeah. What's the, this was not in the notes. I'm just, just going to tell it. She goes, she goes, what's the difference between a musician and a large pizza? A large pizza can feed a family of four. And I was like, man. <laughs> God. Anyways, i fix that for the 11. But the point is, God, cho- <laughs> God chose the people of Israel to be special they're set aside for a special purpose. They're, they're, they're to be different. And that is the explicit textual reason why God gave the food laws. Nothing more and nothing less. Maybe it was to protect them from, uh, you know, unclean things and diseases and other types of meat and shellfish, but that's just not in the text. What's in the text is God says, I want my special people to be distinct and different, which is the second part of the context that we really need to understand, which is Israel is to be set apart I referenced it last week, but but Deuteronomy 32 explicitly talks about this. Deuteronomy 32 says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. That's a reference to the Tower of Babel. When all the people got split up and spread out, God fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Those are angelic supernatural beings, uh, many, most of whom rebelled against God. They said, we want to be in charge. And so essentially you get this portrait in Deuteronomy 32. You want to go worship those false gods? Fine. You can go have those false gods. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. That God chose one people group, one family. It's the family of Abraham in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, whose, whose name was later changed to Abraham, Go from your land. You're going to be distinct from your land. Go from your relatives. Go from your father's house. And you're going to go to a land that I will show you. Talk about faith and obedience, even when you don't fully have all the details. And God says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And here's this, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That Israel is to be distinct. Israel is to be set apart in order to be a blessing to all of these other rebellious nations. Isaiah 42, the prophet uh, speaks the word from the Lord, says, I am the Lord and I have called you. I've, I've called you out for a righteous purpose and I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you and I will appoint you, Jewish people, to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations. This is the purpose. Why do we have what we call an Old Testament? Why is there a nation of Israel? Why is there the book of Leviticus? All of it is God setting apart a special people for himself who would be a light to the nations and who would go with this message of God's salvation to come get the rest of us who aren't Jewish. That's the whole point of this. So context number one as we said, is understanding the law. Context number two, these food laws, this whole sheet being raised and lowered thing, these food laws are for Israel to be set apart. Context number three, though, has to do with the idea of compromise versus legalism. Compromise is ignoring the laws and the commandments of God in order to be more like the nations of the world. Legalism is Adding extra laws to the commandments of God in order to further isolate and protect ourselves from the world. Now, the people of Israel, if you read the storyline of the Tanakh, if you read the storyline of the Hebrew scriptures, you will see that for the vast majority of time, the people of Israel engaged in a lot of compromise. A lot of compromise. Worshipping false gods, participating in the sexual immorality of the other nations, and yes, even eating impure animals and thus defiling the sacred space of the temple. Read the prophets, read the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. It is just compromise after compromise after compromise. And those of you who went with us through the book of Daniel last fall, what ends up happening to the people of Israel and ultimately to the people of Judah? What ends up happening? Exile, removal from the land. And while they spend these 70ish years over in the land of Babylon, God makes a promise, you're going to get to go back. And guess what? He kept his promise and people went back. But do you know what started to happen with those people who went back? They started to reflect wow, our forefathers really did a lot of compromise. They worshiped false gods. They adopted the practices of the pagan nations. They did not stay faithful to the one true God of heaven. So what do you think they started to do? Steer the, di- steer the car into the ditch of legalism. And this is where we find ourselves in the first century, the time of Jesus, the time of the apostles, where widespread legalism has now been built up, particularly among the party known as the Pharisees. Hey, we, we were, we did such a bad job. There was so much compromise. There was so much wickedness. We need to come over here. And not only do we need to not eat the, the impure animals, we need to not be around anyone who does or even have a meal with a Gentile. Friends, how are you supposed to be a light to the Gentiles when you won't even have a meal with them? Widespread legalism. Both errors can come from a good motive right? You know, the, the compromise can be a good motive. Like, I just want to relate to people. I want to be friends with people. I want to show them who God is. That can be a good motive, but it turns into compromise when we then ignore the instructions of God. Or legalism can come from a good motive. I want to be pure before God. I don't want to give in to sin even accidentally, but you build fences inside of fences inside of fences, and before you know, you're in a prison of your own making, which leads me to the fourth piece of context, which is the circumcision party. It's a phrase you don't come across all that often in 21st century. I follow a few different news sources. I get some daily emails. I don't, I don't see that. Here, here's what's going on, okay? There is a controversy that is raging during the time of Jesus. And it has to do with bringing people back in to the the Jewish people, whether they're Gentiles who want to convert or Jewish people who had been, you could say, apostate, wanting to come back in. There's an argument. I I went and found a passage in the Babylonian Talmud, which was a collection of Jewish writings and teachings a little bit before the time of Jesus. The Babylonian Talmud in a section, uh, one of the books known as Yevamot, 46A20, if you want to look it up, because I cite my sources, (sighs) With regard to a convert who was circumcised but did not immerse, Rabbi Eleazar says that this is a convert. So as we found with our forefathers following the Exodus from Egypt, that they were circumcised but not immersed. If you want to join in, you either got to you get circumcised, but you don't have to get baptized. Well, then Rabbi Yehoshua comes along and says, well, with regard to one who was immersed but not circumcised, Rabbi Yehoshua says that this is a convert. So as we found with our foremothers that they were immersed but not circumcised. So the rabbis say, whether he was immersed but not circumcised, or whether he was circumcised but not immersed, he's not a convert until he does both, gets circumcised and immerses. Okay, I can tell that you're not as stunned by this as maybe I was hoping you would be. This is like hot, you know, this is, this is controversial stuff from the rabbis. If somebody wants to join, do they have to be circumcised and immersed? or they just immerse, just circumcised? The rabbis say just do both. There's, this is a raging Controversy around the time of Jesus and around the time of the apostles. That might help provide a little bit more context to our New Testament, don't you think? As to why this is such a controversial thing, we're going to get into in Acts chapter 15 for sure. The point being, this is a big deal that Peter. Ate with Gentiles who were themselves not circumcised. Going back to Acts chapter 11, verse 1, the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. All of this context, all of this context. Leads me to the big idea for today that we need to understand deeply and it's simply this. God's people are distinct and different from the world in order to be a blessing to the world. And Peter is now living it out. And he is misunderstood by a particular group of people that have a particular theological viewpoint that leans towards the ditch of legalism. It's this big controversy, and Peter is essentially saying, This has always been the plan. Brothers and sisters of Israel, We have always been called to be different from the world so that we could share the good news of God's salvation with the world. When we're too much like the world, we lost our credibility, we lost our witness, we went into exile. But when we're too separate and we're too distinct from the world, we can't share the good news of Jesus Christ, the ruling and reigning Messiah with them. We have to live in this tension of in the world, but not of the world. That's essentially what Peter is saying. Now, Peter is getting it absolutely right here. And he's saying, this was the whole point. And throughout the rest of the chapter 11, we can see some of the blessings that start pouring out as a result of this, picking it up in verse 18. When they, the members of this circumcision party, when they heard this, when they heard Peter's whole story that I just read a moment ago, they became silent. And they glorified God saying, so then... God has given repentance resulting in life even even to the Gentiles? Friends, this is the blessing of repentance. Blessing number one, conviction and repentance. Think about this. If you read the book of Galatians, we're going to encounter some more people who are of this circumcision party and the apostle Paul writes some very stern words against them. But may we never forget that even those people who are so locked into their ways, who are so set in the particular way of thinking, when the Holy Spirit shows up, he brings conviction and repentance. And friends, that is a good thing, is it not? Conviction and repentance. Boy, these words, especially in our culture, get a bad rap sometimes. Like conviction is, is like seen as like condemnation or you're rubbing someone's nose in something. Friends, that is not it at all. The book of Romans chapter two says that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Friends, when you are, when you're violating God's law, when you're violating the moral law, when you're, when you're sinning against God, it is not a grace for you to just continue doing what you're doing. It is God's grace to bring Conviction and to bring repentance that we might kneel before the Lord and say, I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? And you know what the scriptures promise? A a broken heart and a contrite attitude, God will never deny. And that Jesus has grace upon grace upon grace for any who will humble themselves and say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Repentance is a blessing, is it not? That's the first blessing we see, even for these members of a very strident circumcision party. Blessing number two, verse 19. Now, those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, but they're speaking the word to nobody except Jews. So Jewish people are being scattered because of persecution, but they're only talking to Jewish people. But, verse 20, there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. This is blessing number two, the ethnic unity that comes as a result of God's newly united family. Friends, I need you to understand something. This idea, we're having, we are having in our 21st century American context, nationwide discussions and not so much discussions as shouting matches sometimes about the subject of race and racial reconciliation. And it it breaks my heart when I hear people who don't have the framework of the gospel, who don't have the truth of scripture, who don't have the leading and the guidance of the Holy spirit trying to achieve some sort of uh, ethnic unity and racial reconciliation, because I believe in my heart of hearts that it's doomed to fail because racism and racial tension is not some sort of a new problem. It's kind of always existed since the tower of Babel and, and, Ethnic unity and the restoration of God's family, uh, regardless of race and ethnicity, even age and, and male and female and all these things that would divide us. This is not some like little kind of neat little side add-on to the, to the gospel. This is right front and center for what the gospel does. Christ Jesus came to die, to rise again, to reconcile God and man and man and man. This is not an add-on to the gospel. And friends, we who are people of the scriptures, of all people, should be the most bold about talking about Jesus bringing together Jew and Gentile. He can bring together people from Cyrene and, and, and Antioch and Cyprus and Phoenicia and, and, and Jews and Greeks, the circumcision, the circumcision party and these uncircumcised Gentiles. They could all sit together at the table and get along. Friends, this is the message of the gospel for us to live out that Christ brings reconciliation to God and reconciliation to man. This is the second blessing we can see in this passage. Number three, verse 22. News about them, these Gentile believers, reached the church in Jerusalem, and so they sent Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. Now, we've met Barnabas, good old Barney, uh, a few times. We met him first in chapter five, before Ananias and Sapphira Uh, were struck dead for lying to the Holy Spirit, it says that Barnabas actually was giving generously. So we saw his generosity in chapter five. Uh, In chapter nine, when Pastor Kyle was preaching, he is the one that actually goes to Saul, the murderer, the persecutor. He's the only one who's like willing to go to Saul other than Ananias and like actually find out, is this conversion thing legit? Is Saul really one of us? He's a follower of the way. So Barnabas gets sent out now to go check on these Gentiles. What's going on? When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And large numbers of people were added to the Lord. So then Barnabas, he goes to Tarsus to search for Saul. Hey, we got to go get that Saul guy. Remember him? He's been hanging out for a while. He's probably got some different perspective. Let's go find him. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. And the disciples were, were called Christians first at Antioch. Blessing number three is Christ-likeness. First of all, we see this lived out in Barnabas. Full of the faith, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, encouraging people. His name literally means encourager. He's going around just encouraging people, loving people. Barnabas is just like one of those guys that you just wish would adopt you as your uncle. It's like, please, be my uncle. Please just be around me. I love you so much. You're so encouraging. You're so faithful. And because of his leadership, because of the kind of culture that he's cultivating among the believers in Jesus, the people start to call them little messiahs. And most scholars think, when, it, when, when you read this, this um, they were first called, they didn't call themselves this. This is a nickname that was given to them probably most likely by skeptics. Ha! You little, little Jesuses over there, little Messiahs, Christians. Says a lot though, huh? That they're so identified with Jesus that even the skeptics would start to make fun of them. Yeah, you're just little Jesuses. Oh, oh that we would experience the blessing of Christ's likeness. Amen? Amen? Oh that we would be so like Jesus. You guys are just these little Jesus Jesus freaks like Pete's always wanting to sing on Sunday morning. So, Fourth blessing, number four, verse 27. Now in those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and he, he had a prediction by the Holy Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. And this took place during the reign of Claudius. You can dig into some history there. It's fascinating. It really did happen. Basically, uh, the Roman government had overspent and were deeply in debt, and then it all came crashing down. It's hard to imagine a government doing that. I got to move on. Verse 29. Each of the disciples, <laughs> man, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. This is pretty amazing. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. The, the blessing number four is the practical care. These are Gentile and Jewish believers mixed together in, in Antioch, hearing that there would be a severe famine in the region of Judea where this whole movement started. So they gathered what they could. They, they scrimped, they saved, they sacrificed, and they gave. And they took care of the practical needs of brothers and sisters that they had never even met Friends, I'm so grateful by your—just uh, blessed and grateful for your generosity over this year. And it's, it's, it's not just the practical things like paying the bills or even being able to fix up this, this building and make improvements, but the money that you've given uh, to help take care of families in need in war-torn Armenia— the money that you have given, uh, the money that you gave a couple years ago for our mission in Uganda that we heard from Pastor Kyle last week, is still paying off dividends. That now there's this clinic in Uganda that is still happening because of the generosity of you from a few years ago. The way that you've taken care of each other's needs, we get benevolence requests as a church for for people who are struggling or hurting in this season. But half of the time, we collectively as a church don't even get to help with those benevolence needs because the community groups end up just rallying together and paying for the needs and taking care of things yourselves. I'm so blessed by the practical care. And again, this is not some tangential thing to the gospel. Sacrificing and giving your money is not some add-on to the gospel. It's right at the heart of what the gospel, like, the, like a demonstration that we understand the gospel. For God so loved the world, he gave and if you've experienced that kind of love, then we give. Now, let me, let me bring it back around to our, to our main point. All those blessings. I love those blessings. And there's, there's more, right? In that song we sing, uh, uh, great is thy faithfulness. Blessings all mine and 10,000 beside. These are just the four that I see in the text. There's so much more blessing to be had when we, back to our main point, Live distinct from the world and seek to be a blessing to the world. Jesus shared this with his disciples the night before his arrest. In John 17, he's praying the the high priestly prayer. He says, now I'm coming to you, Father, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. I've given them your word. And the world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That sanctifies, that holy, set apart for a special purpose. As you, Father, sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. I sanctify myself. I set myself apart. I'm distinct. I'm different. I'm set aside for special use for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Friends, we often focus on the us part of this passage, but before we look at that, do you see Jesus himself the one who is the true Israel, the true Israel who never failed in Israel's vocation, that Jesus was distinct from the world. Jesus was separate from the world. He was set apart and sanctified and holy so that he could be a blessing to the world, so that he could actually die a sacrificial death. If Jesus was not distinct from the world, his death means nothing He's just another religious leader who gets executed. But if Jesus is the spotless lamb of God who never violated any of God's moral laws or any of the ritual laws, in fact, he had the force of life flowing out of him so powerfully that when he touched people with leprosy or he touched the the woman with the issue of blood, boom, they became clean because of his great power. Jesus is distinct from the world to be a blessing to the world and we who are united with him are united in that vocation, the vocation he gave to Israel, the vocation he himself lived out, and the vocation we now have to be distinct and a blessing. We are not the same as the world, but we are not separated from the world. It is a tough tension to live in. Do I get an amen from anybody on that? We go into these ditches. We can, we can not be distinct enough. Seeking acceptance and validation and comfort. It's, it's like in our, in our liturgy when we said, do not love the world or the things in the world. It's, it's lust. It's pleasure. It's, it's, it's I'm going to the world to get something. It's a selfish motive. But the other ditch is this ditch of too distinct and and too distant. And it's a, it's almost like a fear of being corrupted by the world. But that's also a selfish motive. I got to protect myself from this big, bad, ugly, scary world instead of remembering that you have been made clean by Jesus. And now the power of Jesus lives in us. And we stay distinct from the world, but we engage with the world, carrying in our mortal bodies the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. The power of Jesus to make unclean things clean now lives within us. We ought to have a little bit more confidence in him. And so now as we prepare to go to the Lord's table, to eat, to drink, to remember, to experience his power and his presence within us, I will just simply ask you to pray and to reflect. Do you go towards too much love of the world? Do you retreat in fear away from the world? How might God want to bring you into that beautiful tension of being distinct from the world so that we might be a blessing to the world? Will you pray with me, God? Help us to live in that tension. Help us, Lord God, as you have called us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of your glorious son, Jesus Christ. And yet you've not just called us out, you've sent us on a mission as well. Lord, I I confess it is hard for me. It is hard for us to find that place, to live in that tension, to do both aspects of that which you've called us to. But we trust you, Lord God. And even now, as we reflect and eat and drink, would you empower us for that mission that we might be distinct in order to be a blessing. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen.